If you join me this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as we continue our study in this really significant book, very important chapter, dealing with the right view of those who are bringing the gospel to us. I'm going to preach this morning on caution men at work. Next week, I've already got my title, and it's that. Now, that's true. Hopefully, that, that sign will not be here next week. But I want to preach next week on danger, construction site, do not enter. Um, from verse 16 and following, but today we'll look at verses 5 to 15. I want to begin reading in verse 1, so we know the whole flow of this argument. Paul writes, But I, brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? And by the way, it's interesting, Apollos doesn't say, who then? He doesn't use a personal pronoun, an impersonal word. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Sobering words. Last Sunday, we learned from the opening four verses that the church at Corinth was largely immature behaving as though they did not have the Spirit of God. Twice, Paul says to them, you're behaving as though you're merely human. You're behaving like the natural man that he spoke about in chapter 2, those without the Spirit of God. The evidence of their immaturity was that they were fracturing the fellowship over favored leaders in the church. As we've explored before, they were finding their identity in their leaders rather than in 
their Lord. Though each of these leaders preached the same gospel, nevertheless, the congregation was emphasizing certain aspects, perhaps rhetorical skill, intellectual acumen, perhaps a certain kind of personality. Whatever the source was, they were dividing over that. So Paul says you need to grow up. You need to grow up in your affection for and your appreciation of and your application of the gospel of Jesus Christ to your lives. But Paul now expands on this theme from verse 5 all the way through the end of chapter 4. And as he does so, he emphasizes in a different way that he and Apollos and Cephas and every minister in their church are not merely human, they are those with the Spirit of God, but in one sense, they are, at, at the end of the day, just merely men. To use an old adage, they perhaps were among the best of men, but at the end of the day, they were still only men at best. And so what Paul is going to say in this chapter is, you need to beware, you need to be cautious, Church of Corinth, and realize that there are men at work amongst you, and thank God for them. In fact, if you were in Family Bible Hour, there's an incredible parallel between that passage and this one. He says, thank God for them, but remember, at the end of the day, they're only men. That it is God who has saved you. It is God who has built the church. Paul talks a lot in this chapter about the building up of the local church, about the construction of God's temple, the local church. And in doing so, he provides an always needed warning both to congregation and church leaders that church leaders at the end of the day are only men. One of the lessons I learned in an illness I had last year was to be thankful for skilled doctors. But at the end of the day, it was God who spared my life. God used Dr. John DeVar. I have great appreciation for him. I have great affection for this man. But at the end of the day, it was God who healed me. God gets the glory. And the same is true with the church. At the end of the day, God uses men and women, in the building up of the church, but we need to be careful to keep our focus upon the one to whom the church belongs and the one who does the work. Our day is really no different than the day in which the Corinthians lived. When you drive, drive, around, uh, drive around Alberton, and you'll see oftentimes adverts for churches, and it'll have the pastor and his wife on the picture. Quinn was responsible for us getting a, a new sign. He organized that with the deacons out here. And he sent a picture one day to the elders and said, what do you guys think? And I said, where's my picture? <laughs> where's my picture with me and Jill? And then somebody sent through another picture of me with these shining white teeth. <laughs> I was kidding, of course, but... That's the day and age in which we live. We have over-the-top adulation rather than simply appreciation for those that God uses in our lives. On the other hand, we have such an exaltation of leaders that they oftentimes are considered untouchable and they're not held responsible for their sins. 
Sometimes leaders are so magnified that they become the authority in every area of life. Well, what I'm simply saying is 1 Corinthians 3 is very relevant to us. We need to remember at the end of the day, those who God uses are simply people who are working for him. I want to study this passage under four headings, and the first one is this. Christian ministers are servants. They are not the sovereign. And he says that in verses 5 to 7. What then is Apollos? As I mentioned a moment ago, it's interesting how Paul doesn't use a personal program. You would expect, he just said, some of you are saying, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos. And he doesn't say then, who then is Apollos? Who then is Paul? He uses an impersonal word and says, what then? He's depersonalizing, as it were, the leaders. As one commentator said, he is de-pedestalizing the leaders. He's taking them off their, off their pedestal and just saying, what are they? What, what are we? It's interesting, Paul doesn't say, who am I? He says, what is Paulus? What is Paul? He answers that. We're servants to whom you believed. We're servants to whom you believe. The word servant here, we get our word deacon from it. And the word deacon has the idea of one who waits on tables. It is not something, it is not, the, 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 the waiter is not the chef. The waiter is the one who delivers the goods. I remember hearing a well-known pastor say many years ago, he said, too much credit is given to the preacher. He said, when really all of our job is to get the meal from the chef and to bring it to the table without spilling it. Paul says, we are servants through whom you believed. Now, Paul is not deprecating those that God uses in the reaching of people with the gospel. He does say here, we're servants through whom you believe. God has used us. God uses means towards his end. We're simply servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. What does he mean by that? What he means is particular, particular labors of the each, of the Paul, of the Apollos, and the others. He says, I planted, verse 6, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. That is such an important statement. Paul says, I planted, and we know Paul planted in Acts chapter 18. You read about the planting of the church, literally. How was this church planted? It was planted by Paul going to Corinth and him spending 18 months pro- proclaiming the word of God. He was sowing the seed, Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. He's faithfully proclaiming the gospel. He's faithfully planting that seed. And God saved some people. In fact, he had a lot of people in that city. He told Paul that in chapter 18, verse 10. He plants and he plants, and then along comes Apollos and he waters. How did he water? Well, he watered by building on that, by shepherding them, by teaching them further. Paul is saying, yes, God used both Apollos and myself. I planted and Paul and, and Apollos watered, but who was it that gave the growth? God. But God gave the growth. God literally causes to grow. It's interesting. There's a play on some verbs here on the tenses. 
When Paul says, I planted Apollos water, it's, it's in a particular tense, meaning in the past. There was a point in time when I planted the seed. There was a point in time when Apollos watered that seed. But the verb tense for God giving the increase, increase is God did that, and God is continuing to do that. Paul is no longer planting there. Perhaps Apollos is no longer there watering. But what is God doing? He's still giving growth. He's bringing about the growth of the church. Paul is pointing them to the centrality of God in their salvation and in the life of the church. And he's reminding them we are merely servants. We are not the one who gives the growth. He elaborates on that in verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Now, don't miss that. What he's saying is, if I could use, if I could paraphrase, so neither I or Apollos, we are no big deal. We're nothing. We're not anything. But who is? Huh, but only God who gives the growth. Um, Peter Robertson, a member of our church, is a farmer in his family. And um, whenever it's not raining, he asks me to pray for rain. And he knows he needs rain for the seeds they planted in order to grow. And then when it's raining too much, he asks me to pray that it stops raining. Farmers understand, perhaps better than anybody, at least believing farmers, that it is God who is responsible for the growth. John Calvin famously commented on the, the, the phrase from Deuteronomy that Jesus quoted when he was under temptation, that man shall not live by bread alone. And John Calvin very insightfully said, there's a lot more to that. It doesn't simply mean man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. What it means is this, even that bread alone, there's something that God has to do for that to come about. You can plant all the seeds you want, and you can have all the water you want, but unless God causes the growth, it will not grow. Same with the gospel. In my ministerial lifetime, I have been so blessed to see a return to expository preaching. And I can remember back in the early 1980s when I was exposed to that um, biblical responsibility and how it just changed my ministry. And so I'm grateful for that. We've been, the church is increasingly understanding the importance of biblical theology, that there is one big story in the Bible. And both expository preaching and biblical theology has helped the church to understand that whenever you're studying the Bible, there is a hero in the Bible, and it's not us. It's Jesus Christ. So many Sunday school curriculums teach the story of David and Goliath. This is the one that's often picked on by biblical theologians. And that David and Goliath, and they make David the hero of the story. But David's not the hero. God is the hero of that story. But what is sad is so many of these men... Men like Martin Lloyd-Jones and Graham Goldsworthy and etc., who God has used to bring about this return to a biblical ministry of the word and have taught us 
that the hero is God, so many of their followers have turned them into the heroes. And then you end up with strife and fighting and jealousies. But Paul is writing to the Corinthians, we need to be reminded of that those who preach the word of God are merely co-workers. They are helpers. They're planting and they are sowing. But they're not the hero. Martin Holt, who was a a giant of the faith here in South Africa, used to lament, and he was a gifted preacher, and used to lament that people, he felt like, sometimes followed him more than the Lord he was trying to point them to. And it was well known that on a Sunday, people would pull into the parking lot of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Horizon, and they would ask someone at the door who's preaching, and if it wasn't Martin Holt, they would leave. This is relevant. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who causes the growth. God uses servants, but they are not the sovereign. They are not the hero. Paul understood this. Corinthians were behaving like the world. The world has its celebrities. The world has its heroes. And the world has those because they try to find their identity in them. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, stop that. Your hero needs to be the Lord. He's the one who does the work. He goes on and brings us to our second point, that Christian ministers are responsible and they are accountable. He says in verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. Let me just pause it for a moment. Let me tell you what I think he means by that. He says, he who plants and he who waters are one in status. They are one in purpose. In other words, applying this to Paul and Apollos, there's no difference between us. We had different functions, but we have the the same purpose. And that is a gospel-centered purpose. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's work, fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. I went through this passage and just circled every time you find the word God, and it's significant. Paul is saying, listen, Christian ministers... Christian leaders, Christian teachers, preachers, elders, those who are leading the church, they are responsible, and they're going to give an account to the one who owns the field, to the one who owns the building, to the one who has brought together the fellow workers, that is God. I am... I'm not a lot of fun at the best of times. My wife is going, yes. I am particularly not a lot of fun on a Saturday from about 3 o'clock. Because from Saturday about 3 o'clock, it just starts weighing on me again. So I'm here at the church usually till about noon. I go home, have lunch, have a nap. 
Got to have a nap. Older I get, got to have a nap. In fact, I like to have two naps if I can work that in. And um, by 3 o'clock, it starts weighing me again tomorrow, Sunday. And I'm responsible. If I'm preaching, I'm responsible to accurately proclaim God's word. But more than that, I'm responsible to proclaim God's word in such a way that God remains the focus. And I know that I will give an account for how I will do this. And I don't always sleep well on Saturday night, and part of it's excitement, and part of it is just the weight of this responsibility. I think that's what Paul is trying to get across here. He's saying, listen, those who labor in the Word, if I could put it that way, they're going to receive their wages according to their labor. Because we are gods. And the church is gods. And therefore, the church, therefore, those who are leading those entities that belong to God have an awesome responsibility. He speaks here. He goes from the, the, the picture of a field to the picture of a building. And we'll see next week um, more about this when he actually calls the church in verse 16, the temple of God. That's what he has in, in view here. It's interesting, by the way, in the Old Testament, you had pictures of gardens and the picture of the temple, and oftentimes those were meshed. In fact, the very first place of worship in history was in a garden, right? That was God's temple. That was the place where God's people worshipped him. When Solomon built his temple, it's amazing how many of the pillars and the structures had agricultural elements in it, flowers, shrubs, trees. Because there's this picture of a garden at the end of history, at the fulfillment of the new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be a city and there's going to be a garden with a tree in the midst of it, the tree of life. And so Paul isn't really changing themes here. He's just developing it. And he moves from an agricultural picture, a horticultural picture, to one of architecture of construction, God's building. And Paul realizes this building belongs to God. This building, this church, is God's temple. And therefore, those who labor, though they realize that compared to God, they are nothing. That they are, in a sense, depersonalized. They're not even a who, they're a what. They understand that. But they also understand that they're a what with a large responsibility. Sometimes people want to jump into the ministry, particularly the pastoral ministry, because it looks so exciting, and it is. And it looks so attractive, and in some ways it is. But you have to realize there's a weighty responsibility with that. Christian ministers are responsible. They are responsible, and they are accountable. So I would say to my fellow church leaders this morning, we need to remember who it is that we serve. 
We don't primarily serve the field nor the building, but we serve the owner of the field and the building, the Lord God. And as leaders let that sink in, then faithful service, and I think leadership with integrity flows. Because when you realize at the end of the day that, as it says right here on this pulpit, God is my audience, when you realize that God is the one that we are to please, everybody benefits. Church leaders must keep their focus on God's work, on God's building, on God's goal. God's goal. He says we're God's co-workers. And by the way, I don't think what Paul means by that is we're co-workers with God. I think what he's saying is, just talked about myself and Apollos, we're co-workers, we're co-workers who belong to God. You see the difference? God doesn't need me as a co-worker. I could drop dead today and he would be fine. I hope that never happens because that would probably be shocking, wouldn't it? Paul says we're co-workers together. I love that, by the way. Here's Paul, an apostle. Apollos is not. Paul, who's incredibly gifted, Paul, who is writing inspired scripture, he says, hey, Apollos, he's not those things, but we're co-workers together. There's humility there. But we belong to God. And this field belongs to God. And this building belongs to God. This church belongs to God. Brings us to our third point. Christian ministers are capable and they are careful. He says in verses 10 to 11, according to the grace of God given to me, Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul reminds his readers that when he was with them, he laid a proper foundation for their church. And as we saw in chapter 2, it's quite clear what that is. He said, when I came to you, I determined, I made this deliberate decision I was going to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is, Jesus Christ, who he is. And crucified, what he's done. And so Paul is saying, when I came to you, by the grace of God, I, I laid that one and only foundation. He speaks about, in fact, about the fact that he was a skilled master builder. That means, you could translate that, a wise master builder. But why was he a wise master builder? Why did he lay this foundation? He laid this foundation because of what? The grace of God. Once again, he's pointing the readers back to God. If you're going to, if you're going to exalt me, be, think twice about that, Paul says, because the reason that I had the wisdom to preach the gospel, the reason that I had the wisdom to come and preach Jesus Christ, who's the son of God, who's a hundred percent man, 100% God, because I had the wisdom to come and proclaim his life, that he lived a perfectly sinless life, because I had the wisdom to come and preach to you that Jesus Christ died on the cross, experiencing the wrath of God for all of those who repent and believe on him, the wisdom I had to come and to preach to you that he was buried and that he rose from the dead and that he ascended to the heavens. He's on the right hand of the Father. The reason that I had that wisdom was because of the grace of God. In other words, this was not my message. I didn't make it up. It came from God. 
He had wisdom to lay the only foundation that can be laid, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. He's speaking perhaps of the leaders that are there now in Corinth. And he says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. You may have great wisdom, but you better be very, very careful. You might be greatly gifted. You might have a lot of capability, but take care how you build on that foundation. What does he mean by that? Well, he explains it in verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Here's what he's simply saying, I think. He's simply saying, when I came to you, the foundation that I laid for the building of this church, the planting of this church, was the gospel. And woe be to anybody who comes along and tampers with that foundation. Woe be to anyone who comes along and preaches anything else besides the gospel. Two weeks ago when they started this one-week project, You've been there before, right? They were kind of complaining after the first day because they were taking these columns down. And they said to Tommy, sure, these columns are strong. They had all kinds of um, rebar in them, strong concrete. And I said to Tommy, I said, the guys who built this building, I think this is right, was Grant Construction. Grant Construction was an excellent construction company, and they didn't fool around. I mean, this building is here to last. The foundations here are strong. Wouldn't we be foolish to say, you know what? We want to grow bigger, so let's take the foundations up and just put sand. That would be nuts, right? That's what Paul's saying. Paul is really saying, don't be nuts. I laid this foundation... And anyone who comes along after that better not tamper with the foundation. You better not tamper with the gospel. In fact, he wrote to the Galatians about this very problem. He says, I marvel that so soon, in fact, it was was just months afterwards. So soon after I preached the gospel and this church was planted, Acts 13, and this church was planted there, so soon after that, you've moved away from the gospel. He said, if anybody comes to you preaching anything other than the true gospel of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, if anybody comes with another message, let him be accursed. Everything that Christian leaders do in a church needs to be done with an eye on the gospel. We're a very... Deliberate church. Somebody wrote a book called The Deliberate Church. I like that phrase. We have wedding policies and we have funeral policies. And in all of those, if you were, and you're welcome to ask for those, if you were to look at those, you're going to see in all of those, what we want to do is promote the gospel. We want to guard the gospel. When it comes to the teaching ministries of the church, when it comes to everything about this church, 
We're asking ourselves the question, how will this adorn the gospel? How will this guard the gospel? If we're going to have a church, as Paul will say next, it's going to endure the fire of God's judgment. It must be a church that all that it does, it does with an eye on that foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. As someone has said, whether a worker's task be primarily evangelistic or pastorally, pastoral both must be in keeping with the character of the foundation stone who is Christ. Any doctrine of the cross that treats it only as the entry point into the Christian life, and I might add into the church, is seriously deficient. Paul is saying, if you want to assess Christian leaders and make judgments about them, he'll expand on that in chapter 4, but if you want to make judgments about those who are leading you, if you want to evaluate them, which, by the way, you should, if you want to evaluate those who are leading the church, then you evaluate them by their faithfulness to the only foundation, which is Jesus Christ. Those who lead God's church must strive and labor to keep the main thing the main thing. And can I say this, congregation? That's partly your responsibility as well. So if you get away from that, you have a right and responsibility to say, hey, we're moving away from this. Recently in the Southern Baptist Convention, they had a big, a big hoo-ha over a guy by the name of Rick Warren. I wrote an article about it some weeks ago, Saddleback Community Church in California, massive church. Rick Warren has had plenty of critics throughout the years, and I've been very careful about that because I think there's a lot of good about Rick Warren. But Rick Warren recently, in his church, they ordained women elders, which is in defiance of the Southern Baptist Convention, which, by the way, most importantly, it's in defiance of the Word of God. And so his church was disfellowshipped from the Southern Baptist Convention, and he was arguing, and I heard him argue the other day, in, a, in an interview, he was saying, listen, we need to keep the main thing the main thing, preach the gospel, and not be separated and divided by these secondary things. And as I heard that, I thought that you need to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because understand that everything you do in the church, if you're not lining it up with God's inspired word, eventually that's going to affect the gospel. As you keep your focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ, it keeps your focus right on every other thing. In other words, God wasn't just right about the gospel. He's right about church polity. God appointed leaders must continue to point the church to its foundation. And there is no other foundation. This is the only way to have a God-centered church. The only way. The gospel shapes the church. The gospel forms the church. Let me begin there in Acts chapter 2. When Peter proclaims on the day of Pentecost, when people are confused about what's happening to the tongues and all of this, he stands up and he does what? He proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the result of that is 3,000 people are convicted of their sin. They repent. They believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same day, there are added to them 3,000 souls. The church is shaped. It's formed by the gospel. But the church must always be conformed to Christ, and that happens through the gospel. 
Jesus Christ as the one foundation. And when the church veers away from that, the church will only be reformed as it comes back to the gospel. Finally, Christian ministers make choices, and they will be tested. Look at verses 12 to 15. Now, having established what the foundation is, <coughs> now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, <coughs> precious stones, I could just paraphrase, or alternately, wood, hay, straw, <coughs> each one's work will become manifest. It'll be revealed. For the day, my version capitalizes day. Because I think it's speaking about a day of judgment. For the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, let me just say something that historically, not, not historically, but in recent history, The traditional application, interpretation of chapter 3 is that this applies to every Christian. And every Christian, depending on how you live your life, you're going to stand before the Lord, you're going to stand before the fire of his judgment, and only what you've done for Christ will last. By the way, that is the truth. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's speaking to church leaders. And the day is a day of judgment. And he speaks about fire... And when you read about fire in the New Testament, it's almost always associated with that final day of judgment. And there's coming a day when churches that are led by mere men who are responsible to preach the gospel, those churches are going to be tested. They're going to be judged. And I think this passage is a lot more sobering than at least I ever saw it to be. Because he says here, in verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation, that is Christ, survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, He will suffer loss, that is, the minister is going to suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. By the way, the Roman Catholics take from this passage purgatory. Well, I've looked at this passage a lot this week. I don't see it anywhere there. There's no purgatory here. Some interpret this as a works-based salvation. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think what Paul's doing is rightfully, reverently, trying to put the fear of God into leaders, saying, you know what? One day, the people in your church, your congregation, is going to stand before the Lord. And those who are regenerate, those who have heard that foundational message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and repented and believed on that, they're going to survive. But if you don't preach the gospel, and you preach something else, 
and your church is built upon something else, and people are believing something else, then guess what? They're going to be destroyed by what? Fire. So let me try to simplify this. Paul's saying, if you get away from the foundation, if you move away from Jesus Christ and him crucified, you move away from that divine gospel blueprint, then you are setting your people up for eternal judgment. You know, when you try to make the wisdom of the world, the hub of your church, so you can attract people. Paul says, be careful. Because there's going to come a day of judgment. And though you, as the minister, as a believing minister, though you're going to be saved, you're going to look back and your entire work just burn up in judgment because you are not faithful to preach the gospel. I can't think of a worse thing. I can't think of a worse thing to stand before the Lord. And the Lord say, Doug, you didn't preach the gospel. And you had, therefore, an unregenerate membership. What Paul wants, and he keeps kind of going back and forth with this. He says, you're not mere men. You have the Spirit of God, but you're acting like mere men. In chapter 5, we're going to see you got somebody there who is acting like a merely human person. They call themselves a brother, but they're not living like it. They're unregenerate. Breckenhurst Baptist Church may not have a lot of bells and whistles, but I'll tell you what we must have, and that is faithfulness to preach the gospel. There is nothing... How do I say this? There can be nothing more deceptive than an unregenerate church member. No appetite for the things of God. No affection for God's people. No service. Just ticking boxes. And they can come and they can hide. And in a real sense, as we've seen already, it's God who causes the growth. And Christian leaders can't always discern the truth from the false. And when you try to do that, you have a problem with the wheat and the tares parable. At the same time, I want to do all in my human, all in my power to be able to guard against somebody thinking they're saved who's not. Frightening. Churches that refuse to talk about sin because it's not comfortable. Churches that are taking their cues from the business world in order to, to lead their church. Churches that are taking their cues from psychology and ideologies rather than the word of God. They're setting their, their, their people up for deception and ultimate eternal failure. Judgment. Let me close with this. At the end of the day, those who are leading the church 
leading the local church are just men. And they're going to make mistakes. And they're going to fail. Someone brought up in our family Bible hour class today that the shepherds are also sheep. If you've been in this church long enough, you could have a whole list of things where we failed. But here's one thing we must never fail in, and that is to keep this church focused on Jesus Christ and him crucified. If we do that, then we are going to grow in Christ because God's going to cause us to grow. But what we need is men at work proclaiming this glorious gospel and trusting God to do his thing. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is simple. Help us as leaders. Help us as a congregation to truly keep the main thing the main thing. Keep our eye on the only foundation in which we can build our lives, and that is Jesus Christ was crucified for us. Keep us gospel-centered. Keep us God-centered. And we trust you for the growth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.